All right, welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Chris Lundstrom. Uh, he's the head coach of Minnesota Distance Elite. He's also a professor at University of Minnesota. <clears throat> Chris ran for Stanford in the late 90s and was an original team member of what was then called Team USA Minnesota um, starting in 2001. Uh, during his competitive running years, he finished third um, in 2001 at the USA Marathon Championships. Uh, in 2006, he finished fourth at the USA Marathon Championships. A uh, three-time qualifier for the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials, 2004, 2008, 2012. And he represented the U.S. in the 2007 Pan American Games in the marathon. Uh, he also uh, represented the U.S. in the 2010 World Mountain Running Championships. Um, <clears throat> he has somewhere around 20 years of coaching experience, um, high school, college, post-collegiate. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in kinesiology with an emphasis in exercise physiology and did his dissertation on running performance. It was great to get Chris's answers to some of my questions from the perspective of someone who has been an elite runner, coaches elite runners, and is also a exercise scientist. Uh, some of my questions, actually probably most of them are the same questions I've asked most of my guests, but it's interesting to get different people's answers to those questions. So anyways, here is my conversation with Chris Lundstrom. Chris, uh, thanks so much for taking some time to answer some questions today. I'm happy to. I always love talking about the marathon. Well, uh, first of all, congratulations on the year you guys are having. Um, I mean, just off the top, I know uh, Dakota Lindworm, first place at Grandma's, yep, yep. third American at Boston. Then you mm -hmm. have um, just past week or two ago uh annie frisbee third american in new york yeah yeah it's been good so it was funny i heard um a short interview with annie right after the marathon in new york and she said and this was her first marathon she said she was hoping to break 235 <laughs> and then she runs 226 something uh yeah uh you know um, I think going into the, the training, the, the idea was to get a positive experience under her belt, you know, first marathon. Um, and so you don't really want to put a lot of pressure or expectation on what the, the time is going to be. Um, uh, but certainly with her other races leading up to it, uh, you know, we, we certainly expected that, uh, you know, she was capable of running uh, quite a bit faster than that. But at the same time, uh, you know, you want to just take it, uh, take it for the experience that it is and, uh, and make the most of it and be competitive. You know, it's a race like any other. So go out there and do the best you can on the day. And uh, uh, yeah, it certainly was uh, pleasantly uh, surprising though, how, just how fast she did end up running. <laughs> yeah. And especially on that day, it seemed like, a lot of other people were disappointed with their times versus what they expected to run. Um, and then with this being her first, I mean, it just seems very unusual to number one, beat your expected time in a marathon at all. And then number two, especially if it's your very first one. So I guess that, that leads into a pretty good training question, which would be, it seems like the marathon is hard to, really dial into uh prediction wise whereas like with shorter distances you can do pretty good simulation workouts like for a 5k you can go out on the track and do five by a k at your mm -hmm. goal race pace with some recovery and have a pretty close idea of what you're going to do but with the marathon there's no like you know whole encompassing simulation workout you can do you can't go do 26 by a mile or something um yeah Mm -hmm. So what, uh, do you guys put much stock in any of the, I guess what you could call indicators, whether that's indicator workouts or 
oh, we're, we know, you know, based on your VO2 max, you should be running this time. Do you do a lot of those kind of calculations? Uh, I think, you know, you look at performance in some of the longer workouts as a, as a pretty good indicator for somebody's potential. Uh, but to your point, I mean, especially with a course like New York, where you've got hills and, you know, really big changes in energy as you move from one neighborhood to another and, um, you know, unpredictable weather. Uh, fortunately, we had pretty much perfect weather um, this year, but you can have winds, it can warm up, um, different things can happen. So, I mean, I think with the marathon, the thing that's different is the, you know, the slight miscalculation tends to lead to bigger, uh, bigger differences in that finish time than you would see in a 5k, you know, you blow up in a 5k and oh, there's, you know, 20 seconds uh, in that last mile or something. That's pretty terrible. Uh, but in a marathon, you, you can bleed, you know, multiple minutes in a, in a, in a few miles there. So, so yeah, it's just a little, the consequences are worse for miscalculation. Something else I wanted to uh, get your take on is um, just overall volume for mm -hmm. training for a marathon. So more so than other shorter distances, it seems like, uh, especially at the elite level, there's much more emphasis on overall volume as a metric of your training. Um, mm -hmm. So you have your key specific workouts but then you also have this number that a lot of people are, whether it's minutes or miles. Yeah. Um, so how do you, I'd like to know how you think about volume and how you regulate, you know, what you think the right amount is for any given runner. Um, and because the way I've kind of felt about it, the only way I've understood it is that, well, because each marathon workout is really only a small piece of the puzzle, you need that overall volume to kind of be its own piece of the puzzle um, mm -hmm. just to make you more fatigued during those other workouts. So you'll be um, to help simulate it because, like I said, you can't go out and do um, one magical predictor workout. It's kind right. of all these pieces together. So is that how you think about volume or is it more... Um, yeah, I don't know. I just like to get your yeah. take on it. Yeah. It, I mean, I think you should think about it like you do any other workout, which is what is the purpose and what is the point of, of what I'm doing here? I think the big piece for the marathon, for me, what, why volume can matter is, is just the metabolic side of becoming more, um, you know, more economical as a runner, um, upregulating your ability to metabolize fat, um, and I mean, most of the better marathoners out there, you know, you tell them to go and run a 10 mile easy run and they can actually do that and not it and, and recover for the workout the next day. It's not like, you know, you're more recreational runner where you say go run an hour and that alone is a pretty major stress. So, um, uh, but I think there are a lot of factors and just the athletes that I coach, there's a pretty wide range in how much you know, if we want to calculate it as mileage, how much mileage they'll do uh, in a marathon buildup uh, based on experience, uh, how they feel. I mean, that's a huge thing. It's like if, if you are uh, doing so much that you're not recovering for those key workouts, then maybe it is too much uh, versus other people. It really, you know, you can run 20 miles uh, broken up into two 10 mile runs on, on your easy day and you feel fine on your workout day. <laughs> so that's kind of how I was as an athlete myself. And, and some people can do that. Others uh, that's just going to get you in a hole pretty quickly. So you've got to be a little more, more cautious. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, that metabolic piece is a big part of the marathon too. So on that metabolic piece, um, there seem to be different schools of thought on this. Uh, you mentioned the, your ability to upregulate fat metabolism. Mm. The, the kind of schools of thought I've heard or that I understand seem to be split into like two categories. One would be, no, you can't change your metabolic uh, makeup during a race. Like you're going to, and it may vary individual to individual, but basically you have some genetic makeup that's going to determine you're going to burn this percentage of carbs, this percentage of fat at mm -hmm. various intensities, and it may change 
depending on the percentage of your max. And then that's what it is, no matter what. Yeah. And then the other, obviously, there's another camp that would say, yes, it is something that can be uh, changed and trained. But mm-hmm. even with that, in that camp, there seem to be different ideas on how to change it. One would be mm-hmm. we need to simulate glycogen depletion and force your body to burn fats at you know during these long efforts and one would be um it's just going to happen naturally by virtue of marathon type workouts whether you're taking nutrition or not Mm -hmm. and then some people really emphasize the nutrition part where you know if you can um optimize your blood sugar and and limit the amount of insulin coming in just on a daily you know hourly basis then you're naturally going to become more of a fat burner so where would you put yourself on in that um you know, among those opinions, how do you look at fat efficiency? Um, yeah, I don't really think I, I personally don't really emphasize fat burning per se, but I think becoming more flexible, uh, becoming more able to um, uh, utilize both carbohydrate and fat. It's true that, you know, if we look at your exercise intensity, as you increase in intensity, you're going to shift towards carbohydrate. Uh, you get more energy delivery for the same amount of oxygen that you're metabolizing. So uh, that's just biochemistry. Your body's going to shift to carbohydrate as you uh, get more and more intense. Uh, But, you know, yeah, one, what is that max level? And then also, um, you know, for the marathon, more importantly, is at that kind of goal marathon pace, that goal marathon intensity, how economical are you in terms of your energy usage at, at a particular pace, uh, and are you able to run at a uh, at at that pace and still uh, burn some fat? So, uh, yeah, I don't think you want to. You know, a marathon is long, but you know, at the elite level, a, a little over two hours, two and a half hours, uh, it's not so long that we want to be, uh, you know, one hundred percent fat adapted. Uh, we really want to be able to burn carbohydrate too. So, being flexible, I think, is the key. Yeah, I guess that's a good point at your level where you're not running much more than, you know, 210 to 230, depending on male or female. And you have the ability to take in so much during the race. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of look at it like, well, we're going to be able to take in enough during the race to bridge that gap anyway. So there's not really we don't really need to put any extra effort into making sure we're, you know, um, like you said, more efficient burning fats or anything. Yeah, I think with, um, I, I would say if, if I were coaching somebody who were maybe on the lower mileage uh, end of the spectrum, I would worry more about that. But somebody who's already running pretty high mileage, uh, I think it does happen pretty naturally. Um, and you, you don't want to overdo it where you're uh, overstressing the, the body by doing excessive amounts in a, in a carb depleted state either. So that's just going to, you know, prolong your recovery period and make you more prone to illness, injury, et cetera. So uh, if you're at high mileage, I I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. Yeah. So during a, a race, there seems to be a pretty standard procedure, uh, of, something between every 5k to every half hour taking something Mm -hmm. you know starting at the start line or the first 5k um do you think that's just kind of a natural comfortable interval for people to kind of that people have kind of worked themselves into or is there any have there been any studies around that or how what's your strategy about race nutrition yeah, I, I think that's uh, a mix of, you know, practical and uh, and what seems to work. I mean, taking things more frequently, like if you look at cyclists, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times they're taking a little bit, uh, things a little bit more frequently, but, you know, they've got a bike where they can have that fluids on them all the time and it's very easy. Um, and uh, certainly for somebody who's running at a slower pace, I think maybe more frequently than every 5k would be, would be helpful. Um, but for an elite runner, you know, every 15 minutes, uh, getting, getting some fluids and some calories in is, uh, is an, is frequently enough, um, where, you know, if you take the right amount, it's kind of just getting absorbed in, in time for that next, 
uh, that next uh, dose that you're going to get a little further down the road. So, yeah, I think you, you need to kind of pay attention to yourself and, and adjust uh, based on how your absorption is. Uh, one thing I think people don't talk about enough is how greatly the, your needs are going to vary for fluids based on the, the weather. Um, you know, in a very cold marathon, it's actually kind of hard to get enough calories in if you're relying on fluids because uh, you really aren't losing that much in, in sweat. So you don't really want to drink that much. Um, and so you need to shift over towards more gels and things like that, uh, that don't have all that fluid versus when it's hot, uh, you really need to, you know, amp up your fluid intake. Yeah. And I guess on the frequency thing, you know, I, I hear people say that you want to stay ahead of the depletion trends, you know, you don't want to run out of fuel and then trying to be refilling yourself during it. You want to make sure you're always, you know, ahead of the game there. But I've always wondered, what does that really mean? Like, why can't you, I mean, I understand if you run out of glycogen at mile 21, there's going to be problems, but mm -hmm. why can't you just get a quick sugar rush at that point and kind of pick up where you left off? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, there, it's, it has to do with the absorption rate. I mean, it's not like immediate. Well, you do absorb a little bit immediately through the through the mouth and palate, actually. Uh, but you know, the amount you're going to need to fuel exercise, um, it takes a while to absorb, uh, and the um, you know the rate that you're burning through energy is actually pretty high. So um, just having you know that glucose circulating in your in your bloodstream is probably enough to keep you from bonking really hard where your brain you know is not getting enough sugar uh, but your muscles are still probably not going to be able to rely uh, super heavily on that uh, that carbohydrate that you're taking in so uh, it's definitely helpful at that point uh, so I, I do think it's important to take it early uh, and and frequently uh, but also I do think people sometimes overdo it uh, and, um, you know, th that leads to just a lot of GI issues where mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I need to keep going. Well, if your stomach's already, you know, sloshing around and you're not absorbing what you took three miles ago, then there's no point in putting more fuel in that, in that fire. So, um, I think it's a balance. I encourage people to, you know, have a plan and to kind of, you know, adjust based on, on how it's going. But yeah, I would right. say early on taking small amounts, uh, you know, just a, a few ounces, those first few stations until, yeah, you pay attention and you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm actually starting to get a little thirsty or, uh, I'm feeling like, you know, my energy stores are, are maybe going down a little bit. Um, and of course, practicing these things in training is, is really important too. So you just have a sense for how your body's going to respond. Uh, and of course, each marathon, you learn a little bit more too. So going back to the volume question, uh, you mm -hmm. said the metabolic factor is one big reason to try to get your volume up. Um, but I would, I also wonder about the, I guess what you could call the mechanical or the muscular component. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I guess the question here is if some, if you're working with somebody who needs to get their volume up say like they're post-collegiate and maybe they've really only run like 60 miles a week and they're trying to transition to the mar marathon and um it's mm -hmm. just going to take more miles to get where they want to go yeah how how do you think is the the safest way to obviously you know gradually i suppose but um in terms of what types of things you add first to mm -hmm. the overall program, it, do you think it's safer just to add, get the volume up and filled with easy running first, just because new running itself is a new stress load and then mm -hmm. kind of fill it in with quality as you go at, you know, after that, or do you think it's better to kind of, okay, we're going to add some quality here, add some, like kind of go back and forth to different you right. know, zones and add them mm -hmm. simultaneously. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important that to to note that not all miles are, are created equal and not all miles are equally stressful. So if you have a collegiate runner who's been, you know, coming from the track, uh, they're probably used to doing some pretty hard interval workouts, which are, you know, mechanically really a lot of stress on the body. 
so certainly you don't want to get fully away from that speed. Uh, you want to maintain those good mechanics that they probably built through that faster running. Uh, but you probably can gradually increase their volume uh, while keeping that stuff kind of to a minimum uh, in a pretty safe way. Again, as you mentioned, gradually, but also, you know, we're not going to be doing 20 by 400 in the middle of the week. We might do, a you know, 10 or 12 short hill sprints to maintain your mechanics, build some power, make sure that stride is really efficient. Uh, so we're not losing that as we add a lot of mileage, uh, but we're also not, you know, having these, you know, fall down on the infield types of workouts uh, uh, while you're trying to add this other stress, which is a higher mileage type of training. Are you kind of saying like if you're taking someone, if you're trying to take someone up in volume, and I know these numbers can be kind of arbitrary, but just for the sake of example, you know, someone's used to running a max of 65 miles a week and you know they probably need to be in like the 85 95 range would you kind of just want to get them there over a series of months with more um, a higher proportion of easy running first and then when they're kind of comfortable just with the new amount of running mm -hmm. then bring in you know newer quality that maybe your more experienced marathoners are already doing yeah. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, I, I think what I would do is build up for, you know, two, three weeks gradually, then take a down week to kind of make sure we're recovering and then do that, you know, three or four cycles of that till they get where they want to be. Not to say that it would all be easy running, as I mentioned, with the hill sprints and strides and things like that, right. some fast running and also some aerobic quality. So, you know, we do a lot of progression runs, just starting at your kind of normal uh, distance run pace and gradually picking it up, kind of going no faster than, a, you know, a threshold tempo kind of effort. Uh, you might have a some tempo work or something like that in there too. So it's not all uh, easy jogging, but, right. um, but it's, you know, all focused on developing that aerobic system for the right. most part. So I ran my first marathon this past, june at a grandma's oh nice that was my first one too oh really yeah, yeah up there in your neck of the woods yeah um, and uh i kind of got the feeling afterwards on reflecting on it that um and i've been trying to articulate this to myself and other people but it seemed to me like what I guess what you could call, you know, traditional fitness, like whether that's measured by VO2 max or lactate threshold or whatever. Um, once that's at a certain point, it seems like basically your marathon time, your marathon potential time is kind of set or, or anchored to your VO2 max or something like that. And really the trick is getting the tissues like just mechanically ready for the amount mm -hmm. of time they're going to be pounding versus actually building fitness like metabolic fitness during your marathon build i mean is that how you see it because i i felt like my weak link was just all right my hips my knees my feet are just falling apart here like i didn't i felt like the pace was not um to taxing itself is just the wheels kind of fell off. So it's like not really the engine. It was more of the hardware, so to speak. Is that mm -hmm. how you look at it? Yeah, I think that's a very common experience of the marathon. Um, and so that gets to the point that, you know, yes, this aerobic fitness is really important and we want to continue to develop that. Uh, but also, you know, we want to make sure that we're doing stuff to, to strengthen our, our, our whole body. So doing things like strength training or plyometrics, uh, really critical for, for a marathoner just to have that sound, uh, you know, neuromuscular system and, and the, the bones and, and tendons are strong and used to heavy loads. I mean, if you think about what running is, it's, it's repetitive loading and it's that every time you land, it's an eccentric contraction. So um, you know, being able to withstand uh, that over the duration of the marathon is is a huge factor in how well you're going to run, especially over that last, you know, six, eight, even 10 miles. Um, and I know, um, you know, I certainly had uh, 
I've had athletes and have had the experience myself of like, I'm breathing easy. It's just, you know, uh, my legs hurt so much and, uh, you know, I, I just can't go any faster than this. And again, it has little to do with aerobic fitness at that point. It's just, uh, the, the strength of your tissues. Right. Um, so do you, um, like if you have athletes who you think are prepared to do this, do you do much over distance long runs, like 25 to 30 mile range? Yeah, I do. I, I usually we will do, uh, I guess with most marathoners, we'll do like two runs of, you know, 26 to 28 miles. Maybe I've gone up to like 30. Um, but somebody who's a little newer to it, you know, uh, Annie, for example, she did a 25 miler. That was the longest that she did. And then she had a 23 was her second longest run. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's can be useful. One, it just mentally, it kind of takes away that uh, mystique of 26 miles, like, okay, I can cover this distance. Uh, and, and it does, I think, uh, you know, you certainly don't want to leave your marathon out there in training. So you don't want to overdo it. And you want to make sure it's far enough out from your actual marathon that you can recover. But I think it can be helpful uh, to just, uh, you know, build up your, your strength and resiliency to the challenge. Yeah, and I guess if if a two thirty marathoner is doing like twenty six miles, a twenty six mile long run in training, I mean, I don't know, I get, you know, assuming it's just kind of like maybe an easy, then kind of progress into a steady state. I mean, that could be mm-hmm. around a three hour run or so. Or yeah, you... so <laughs> I mean, Dakota is probably a good example of. Uh, the, the kind of the far end of the spectrum where she can really handle a lot of this type of stuff. And, you know, she's done long runs where, you know, you're like, well, you just ran 240 or whatever. Uh, so I think you're pretty fit for the marathon. And that was, you know, supposed to be a relatively easy pace. Um, so, yeah, but uh, to your point, if you're a four or five hour marathoner, then it's a different story. You know, you're putting so much stress on your body by going out and, and running for that long uh, that it, it might be counterproductive uh, at that, at a certain point. But I, I you know, I like kind of like that three hour mark. If you can run for three hours, uh, you know, you're going to, that last hour really make sure you're, you're going to get a sense for how your fueling's going to go. Cause you're going to start mm-hmm. to get to that point where you're maybe running out of gas a little bit and, and, see how your fueling plan is holding up for you, how your stomach is holding up. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it does kind of, I think if you can run three hours, that's a kind of a good mark to shoot for. Yeah. So, you know how we were saying that it seems like at the end of a marathon, your your aerobic ability doesn't seem to matter much because you're just, you, you feel like you're really just trying to keep your legs moving. Um but on the other hand, you know, your VO2 max or lactate threshold or whatever metric you want to use does also kind of dictate to a point that what that easy pace is, going, what your marathon pace is going to be or what you're mm-hmm. able to be comfortable running for two plus hours. So I guess in training, how much emphasis do you put on the lower end of those metrics, meaning like... um vo2 max and faster kind of keeping that whole spectrum shifted down as far as possible i mean because it seems like you could take that to the extreme to just be you know also be really concerned with what your max velocity is over like 50 meters because right (laughs) i don't know at what point that mentality stops because i mean at some point the next distance down is affecting the distance you're running Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's important to maintain balance in training, uh, regardless of your event. Uh, And so for people training for a marathon, I think you should still be doing some faster repetitions. You should still be doing some VO2 max work, a lot of threshold work, uh, and obviously a lot of marathon specific work. Uh, But I would say I just, you know, compared to like what a marathoner is doing versus a 5k runner, uh, in terms of VO2 work, I would say we're going to do probably, you know, once every 
two weeks, maybe once every three weeks, we'll do a session. And it's actually probably going to be lower in volume for the marathoner than it is for the 5k runner. Hmm. We really just want to touch on that, um, on that zone. And, um, again, they might be coming in a little bit tired. We want to get the quality, but you know, you don't need to be out there doing endless numbers of repetitions. Uh, you know, in fact, for a marathoner, the challenge is not going to be how many of these can I do? It's, it's the quality, you know, how, how fast can I, can I get these done in? So I would rather do 10, 400s, uh, and make sure they're pretty good versus, you know, we'll do 20 or 25 and yeah, you can keep going, but, uh, you've already kind of got what you needed out of it. So I do think the emphasis is different just on like, what's the really hard workout. What's the one that you're going to kind of, uh, give them a little more, uh, you know, recovery time going into and, and coming out of versus we're just trying to like maintain that touch on that. Kind of similar to how you said earlier, like 10 short hill sprints, just to maintain your power and stride. Similar idea there. Not, not necessarily trying to develop it like you are a 5k runner, just trying to touch on it to keep it stimulated so to speak yeah i think so i mean i think um obviously when you think of workouts we're always thinking about the benefit what can i get out of this uh but you know every workout has a cost too and that cost is you know the stress on your body um the length of time it's going to take you to recover what workouts are you not doing because you're doing this one instead so you know keeping that in mind and uh you know uh not always going for for more and more and more yeah. Um, now, what about for someone who is focused on the marathon, let's say at the elite level, like someone you're coaching, um, how important do you think it is to, or do you think it's important to take seasons away from the marathon and revisit completely and train like a 5k runner to kind of maybe dig out that groove a little deeper and make mm -hmm. maybe raise your VO2 max a little more before you come back? Or do you kind of, or do you guys just kind of do one long marathon build up, recover, and then repeat? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think it's important to continue to develop the, the your ability at the shorter distance. Um, somebody who's truly a marathoner and that's their most competitive event, and they're not, you know, as competitive at the shorter stuff, they might not want to spend a whole, you know, traditional cycle doing that. Uh, but if that's the case, I would say we're, we're going to recover from the marathon and then we're actually going to spend, you know, a couple months, two, three months uh, working on uh, that shorter end stuff. And um, we might still culminate it with a race that they feel they can be relatively competitive in, like a 10 mile or a half marathon. But the training going into that has been more, you know, 5K, 10K oriented, knowing that they've got this, you know, huge, huge reserve of marathon strength that we don't need to go and uh, worry too much about that side. We really need to develop the, the, the speed to make it more comfortable. Um, but yeah, again, Dakota is a great example where, you know, in, in her training for, a, I forget if it was, I think it might've been before grandma's, we do this, uh, it's essentially a 5k workout that's broken up into 400s with a 200 meter float. Um, and we make it 5k. Uh, and, you know, she ran a 5K PR <laughs> yeah, in that race, uh, in that, uh, sorry, that workout. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I do think, you know, making sure that you're, uh, you know, continuing to improve across the board is, uh, is important. Yeah. So if you've got somebody who maybe hasn't raced a 5,000 meters since college and their PR in that event is... You know, on paper, it doesn't, it's not, um, you know, like when you look at the equivalent race time charts and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and you got somebody with a 5k PR who's, you know, maybe it was five or seven years ago and, um, it doesn't match their current marathon PR at all. It's like, wow, mm -hmm. your 5k time on paper should be a lot faster than that. Yeah. You don't feel the need to like, just get that time back down in line where it should look on paper or anything. Yeah. Um, I think it's a matter of, you know, how much, uh, energy you want to put into it. Um, I, I think it can be, uh, certainly can be helpful to do that just for somebody's confidence and to know, um, yeah, I've, I've got the ability to run whatever time it is, which is equivalent. So therefore 
in the middle of a marathon, I mean, you do get cases where it's a really windy day and the pack stays together and it, then it becomes a, a 10K or a 5K race at the end. Uh, to have that, you know, have that other gear um, in your pocket is, is really nice to have. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I think that's a kind of an individual thing too of, you know, how much time and energy somebody wants to put into, you know, a track, uh, a track PR, you know, you oftentimes, you know, we've got to travel and there's very particular races you want to get into in order to uh, have the right field and the right weather and all that stuff. Um, but I, I do think it's important to, to mix it up and, you know, throw in some, uh, some quote unquote off distances uh, for your kind of the keep it mentally fresh and also just physically to challenge yourself in a different way. Yeah. So I was watching the Chicago marathon this year and um, the men's race somewhere around 18, 20 mile mark. Um, it was Galen Rupp and uh, two other guys and they were all still together. I think it was just mm -hmm. down to the three of them and the commentators yep. were like, I don't know. Who do you think, who do you think out of these three is, um, you know, likely to be able to break away or whatever? And, and one of the guys says, well, you know, Galen Rupp is a 350 miler. So I got to <laughs> think that he's going to have the leg speed to, to have what it takes. And I was thinking, well, yeah, he, but that was like over 10 years ago. And yeah, so yeah. it, you know, I guess it seems like a tough balancing act to, to think about, well, at the end of the race, I want to have what it takes to have the turnover to you know go with the move when it's mm -hmm. made on the other hand like on the endurance side like i don't at the end of the race when the move is made i don't want to already be so close to my aerobic max or whatever that it really yeah. feels like much of a kick so it seems like i mean i get both sides of that argument but it seems like a tough balancing act and you kind of have to have your foot on both sides of it yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, I mean, even the, the mile is a largely aerobic event. So if you look at who, who's able to kick really well at the end of a mile, I mean, yes, the, the top end speed matters, obviously, it's, you know, on that, on that home stretch in particular. Uh, but when the move is made with 400 to go, what's probably more important is like, how much reserve did I spend already? Uh, you know, if it's a tactical race, somebody can be really really fresh and another person might be well i feel fine but i'm you know i've already started to accumulate um, some metabolic byproducts from anaerobic work and and they're going to have a harder time kicking um, because they're just not as uh, they don't have as big a reserve touching on the speed work again for marathoners um you know you mentioned that you know you kind of go through a pattern of recovering from a marathon, revisit some kind of off distance stuff, you know, during the marathon cycle, you'll, you kind of try to maintain some of it. Um, and then obviously I know you've done some research into the more powerful explosive stuff like, uh, um, the plyometrics and mm -hmm. that yeah. kind of thing. So do you think the, the, sh the, sh the more intense, kind of explosive stuff whether that's hill sprints or plyometrics or whatever um do you look at that stuff more as a benefit for um kind of like we were saying those end stages of the race and you're you're recruiting those different fibers and you know making sure your legs don't fall apart or do you do you see that more as um kind of foundational like these are just things that are going to make us faster you know in our in our vo2 type zones to make just to help us be able to, to do the bigger marathon specific mm -hmm. sessions or is it just a combination or yeah i think it's a little bit of both um i mean the big thing is uh improvement in running economy which uh helps with everything i mean it, it's definitely uh, going to make you know your marathon pace uh you know, it's just going to cost you less energy to run the same pace. So you're sparing energy by, by doing that. So, uh, so you, one, you're getting to the later stages, uh, just with having burned less energy. Um, but, but also, uh, you know, the strengthening component, working your muscles through a, a good range of motion. Um, you're just going to have more of those, um, 
muscle fibers to to call upon when your kind of you know default uh, fibers are fatigued. Uh, so in running, even you know unless we're at really true maximal speeds, uh, we're not recruiting all of our muscle fibers uh, because it's a submaximal effort. So you've got to do something to really train that muscular system to uh, get the most out of yourself. Yeah. So speaking of submaximal efforts, um, when you're in that, you know, marathon block of training, do you kind of tend more towards, um, we just want a collection of a consistent, a con, you know, a very frequent submaximal effort as, you know, like say, okay, I would, I would take 20 mediocre. Well, I don't want to say mediocre. Maybe they're intentionally mm-hmm. mediocre workouts. Mm-hmm. Like we want to leave some gas in the tank in these workouts versus, mm-hmm. you know, push really hard back way off and push really hard again. I mean, do you kind of fall to one of those sides or the other more? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the athletes that I work with, with Minnesota Distance Elite, I mean, they are, you know, elite level athletes and they, they have a tendency to want to go really hard. So uh, oftentimes it's not that we don't want great workouts, but yeah, to your point, I would sooner have a, a nice collection of good workouts versus, oh, totally crushed that one. And then I was toast for a week or two after that, um, I think, you know. I mean, that's one thing I've gotten more conscious about is to say at the, you know, before we start a workout, you know, I, I don't want you to go faster than X and I don't want this to be a, you know, really uh, go as hard as you can kind of workout. Like let's cap it here uh, and let's have a good day. And and you remember, you've got that long run on Sunday or whatever it is uh, to kind of that, that focus uh, on and, and make sure that we're, you know, just getting that good collection of, uh, of solid workouts. Um, and it's not necessarily so we can do more and more and more workouts, but just so that we're not, you know, not stepping into that, uh, that zone where you're worried about overtraining and, and getting kind of ground down by the time the race comes around. Yeah. Um, in your research, have you stumbled upon any findings through any of your experiments that maybe surprised you or were um, just a little unexpected or maybe something you thought, wow, this is something I'm actually going to directly apply to my athletes on the team. Yeah. I I mean, I guess you you asked about the plyometric training. That's something that certainly, you know, early in my running career and marathon career, I, I didn't really practice much strength training and that kind of stuff. I just thought, well, it's, it's distance running. I don't need to be in the weight room. And, uh, and you can get away with that for a while, I think. But, uh, uh, but that was one area that I definitely uh, took a lot from and just learned about, you know, the improvements in running economy that, that you can see there. I guess the other big thing, though, would be, you know, I think we have this idea that if we read the scientific uh, literature, we'll find, you know, the, the magic bullet or whatever. Uh, But, you know, if you read pretty carefully and, and you look at papers where they've actually shown that, you know, the individual responses to a different, you know, whether it's a nutritional intervention or a training approach, there's variability in how people respond. So it's, there's a lot more in common with uh, scientific research and and coaching than I think people uh, necessarily understand. So it's really looking at that, that individual response and uh, adjusting. So um, oftentimes we just, in science, you, you report the averages and the standard deviations, <laughs> uh, but you know, you can actually look at that uh, individual response and understand that it's a lot more nuanced than just those averages. Yeah. I was talking to um, Ian Hunter at BYU. Uh, mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. one of the, uh, he was asked to replicate the original uh, Nike four percent study or whatever on the right. super shoes, mm-hmm. and um, so he did. You know, it wasn't his original study, but he replicated it. I think that's right. Um, and uh, I don't have this in front of me, so I hope I'm not wrong. But I think there were only six participants 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they were, you know, measuring the metabolic cost of a, a specific run on a treadmill with different shoes. Yeah. And yeah, it was like two of the guys maybe were the same or even a little worse in the super shoes. And like, but yeah, you take the average and it, you have this result. And, but it's crazy how uh, it's like, wow, well, you really got to just look at your own individual self and, and be like an N of one and yeah, exactly. Which is Mm -hmm. really challenging. Yeah, it is. But I think it's, uh, it's fun too. I mean, that's sort of, uh, I've always, before I be, you know, got into the science side of things, I always looked at myself as an experiment of one and, and tried to pay attention to, uh, athletes that I was coaching and see how they respond to things and uh, adjust in a way, that is, uh, you know, enough to see if, if something makes a difference, but not changing things so dramatically that you just kind of go, well, uh, yeah, the, the Jack Daniels system didn't work, but the Lydiard system, uh, you know, well, these are, you know, so many things are different from one training cycle to another. And, and so, um, you know, sometimes we succeed despite what we did, you know? Uh, so, uh, I think it's, uh, Trying to uh, apply some of those lessons to coaching has been fun. Yeah, and it's plus, like, when you did the Lydiard system, you had the benefit of already had done the exactly, Daniel system. Yeah. So you can never recreate the same day in your life because you, you have the accumulation of whatever came before it. So it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, I like I like keeping that mystique in it because, you know, it mm-hmm. makes it a little more hopeful, I think, because, you know, there's a yeah. little... There's always that hope that something surprising might happen that you just, you know, something yeah. magical. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you something specific on the the plyometric and um, strength training side. Um, and I guess we can just keep it with marathoners, but, you know, you can answer this for distance runners in general. Um, mm-hmm. What is the biggest or most specific, um, if there is one, failure in the muscle system that you think the strength training and plyometrics um, helps prevent like is it is it like hip core position is it something in the lower calves is is there like a common kind of culprit that kind of holds people back that you see where strength training has the biggest impact uh yeah i think it's in balance just in balance uh, across your muscles and between different muscle groups so as distance runners, we're very, you know, we're doing a repetitive activity. We're firing our muscles in the same way over and over again. I mean, hopefully you're integrating some different, you know, hills and changes in, uh, in your terrain, maybe running on some dirt or grass that helps to change the stresses a little bit. Uh, but I think where, uh, where strength training can come in and, and provide a benefit is just in, you know, working things through the full range of motion in a really, you know, comprehensive manner. So uh, obviously you need to have a well-designed program where you're, you know, working all the major muscle groups and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and then uh, on the plyometric side, I'll take it as a separate topic is it's just the, uh, the explosiveness, I think. Uh, and this is something that people often do wrong when they, when they start to try a plyometric program, um, you know, they, they don't focus on the quickness quite as much as they should. You know, it's really spending as minimal amount of time as possible on the ground. So it's a really rapid, uh, rapid movement to tap into the, the body's uh, stretch shortening cycle. So as you land, your muscles and tendons are stretching. You want to, as quickly as possible, uh, turn that around and explode upward so that you're taking advantage of that shortening of the elastic parts of your, uh, your body. So, uh, oftentimes I see people starting with a plyometric program and it's not plyometric at all. It's what I would call a jumps training program. They're jumping, they're landing, and then they're jumping again, which can be beneficial and might be a good place to start. Uh, but it's not truly plyometric or explosive. Right. So you're saying it's not so much about the load you're bearing Mm -hmm. as much as just how quick you can perform the movement. Exactly. Yep. And you really don't need much. I mean, it's, you know, do, do a set of 10 squat jumps, uh, <laughs> take most distance runners and have them do, you know, squat jumps, uh, bounding and some hops, uh, 10 per leg on the, on the hops, something like that. If we're getting true maximal effort, uh, and short 
ground contacts, they're going to be very sore the next day from those three yeah. exercises, a single set of them. Uh, yeah. So you really don't need a lot to start with, especially. Well, with a squat jump, it seems like the the eccentric, I guess the coming down, I'm, not, I'm trying to uh, visualize how you pop or like explode back up. Is it just you come down softly and then explode or so you can't, you know, I'm trying to picture spending a very small amount of time doing coming down into the squat. Yeah, a lot of it would have to do with your arm position. So it, as you're as you're jumping, obviously your arms are coming up and forward. Uh, and then what most people do is they land with their arms in this position and then they come down and their trunk leans forward and their arms are coming back. You want to actually land with your arms already back behind you. Oh. So you're ready to, I mean, you, right. the, the ground contact is uh, still a little bit longer for a squat jump than it would be for like a single leg hop. Gotcha. Uh, but you want to be in position. I would say go down to, you know, your local college and go watch the jumpers, <laughs> watch jumps right. practice and see what, kind of the way that they're moving and then compare that to how your yeah. distance runners are performing these things and uh, pay attention to those jumpers. Okay, good advice. Um, well, I guess we're about to wrap up here. Do you have any, uh, is the year over for you guys? Or do you have any anything left on the calendar for 2021? Uh, yeah, well, we've got the, uh, uh, Michigan pro Ekaden, which is right. this week. So, uh, that's a relay race in Michigan that the Hansons mm -hmm. put on a lot of fun with some of the other big clubs, uh, in the country. And then, uh, the U S half marathon championships is in December in, uh, South Carolina, the mortgage network half yeah. that's uh, early December. And yeah, that's more or less it. We we do have a bunch of people starting to gear up for Houston, either the half or the full marathon there in January. So uh, yeah, it's just getting cold here and uh, we're kind of hunkering down and <laughs> uh, getting ready for the change in, in seasons. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, the, the year is definitely coming to a close. It was a, a pretty exciting to have the big road races back on the calendar again this fall. So we're just thankful that uh, we're able to do all that fun stuff. Yeah. Well, hey, congrats again on the the success you guys have been having this year. And um, thank you again. Thanks again for taking some time. I appreciate your input on these topics. Uh, it was fun. Thank you for having me.